chapter uh, 3 today. Turn this off and get things going here. Awesome. We are all over the place, and I love it. So, we're excited you're here. I mean, we're excited. This is a great Sunday to be a part of what we're doing, getting to see all these families and their babies. We've got some more. We're going to be having another one of these in the upcoming months. It's just a way for us to intentionally say, God, we believe you're at work in the lives of our kids, and we want to be a part of that as a church, and we take these things very seriously, and so we want to recognize that. So we put up with a little bit of chaos all the time as a church. The kids are downstairs. We don't have a lot of room. Sometimes it's noisy, but that's just okay. We're not trying to create an artificial environment. We're getting together as a community of believers all over the place, and we're just basically saying, God, we will want to authentically worship you. So we're in the book of Philippians chapter 3. If you've got your Bible, I want you to get there. For those of you here for the very first time, I want to tell you, we are now 15 weeks into this week, or this verse-by-verse journey through the book of Philippians. And it's been quite a road. I mean, it's taken us a while, and we took a break over Christmas and some things, but it has been, I think, an incredible exercise in looking contextually at Scripture and saying, God, what are you saying to us? And we recognize that the first two chapters of Philippians are really built around this call of, to humility and to unity in the church. The church is called to think and love and live like Jesus so that we can have a united mission. We can be effective tools of the gospel for the Holy Spirit to use. We talked about that for about eight weeks. We explored just those first two chapters. About five weeks ago, we turned our attention to chapter three, where Paul begins to make a shift. He begins to turn the idea away from, a little bit away from being living in humility and living in unity as a church, and more to some deep theological teaching. Because as we've talked about, the Philippian church and, and all these young churches were being bombarded with heretical teaching, teaching that was really basically made of bad theology. And so a lot of Paul's letters are written to kind of counteract this and say, look, there are some truths I want you to stand on. And so we spent five weeks looking at some deep theological truths that Paul's laid, a baseline of sorts by which the Philippians could measure all incoming teaching. And last week we saw Paul turn a little bit. He took that theological baseline that he laid out and he said, now is the time that you begin to live this out. And what we talked about last week is there's times in our life, and they come up often, where what we believe about God, our theology, theology the idea of the study of, of God and the religious truth and religious truth. So what we believe about God has to intersect with how we live. And sometimes that is a radical collision. Sometimes it's difficult. But at some point in time, our theology has to intersect with how we live. Because if our theology remain, remains purely academic, purely something we read about or think about, and it doesn't impact how we live, it's worthless. So our theology impacts how we live. And this is what Paul does. He shifts gears and says, all this that I've given you, right? We talked about all those deep things. We talked about atonement. We talked about justification, sanctification, all these big fancy words that explain a baseline of theological truth to say, this is how I call you to live. And last week, we looked at this idea of pressing on. Paul says, you have got to press on. And we explored that idea as a process of sanctification, that we are being kind of matured and we are growing in our relationship with Christ. And pressing on is not that physical movement for it as much as it is a growth movement that God does in us as we mature in Him. Paul talked about forgetting what's behind. We explored that as not ignoring the past, understanding that it's real, but not living in it in practice and in baggage and realizing that God is a God of redemption. So forgetting what's behind and straining towards what's ahead. Look at that picture of being prepared in our lives to follow Christ and the labor that's going to come involved and running for a goal. We looked at all that. Well, this week, Paul's going to shift our thinking from pressing on to standing firm. 
Now, at first glance, you see those two phrases and you think, these things don't really work together. I mean, how can I press on and stand firm at the same time? Well, we're not talking about physical movements, right? We're talking about our relationship with Christ. And as we grow and mature, right, as we press on, as God grows us, that's part of our growth process. It's this ongoing, always kind of maturing relationship that we're called to have with Jesus. We are also called to stand firm in the face of opposition. We are going to face pushback at every point of our life from the enemy. As we grow and mature in Christ, the enemy is going to, we talked about it last week, is going to come at us stronger and stronger to try and derail you, to make you ineffective, to wound your heart. So in the process of growing and maturing in Christ, we've got to realize that there are places that we have to stand firm, hold our ground. And Paul is going to call us to do those things in concert together. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to be in the book of Philippians chapter 3 starting in verse 15 today. We're actually going to motor through quite a bit. We're going to get all the way down through 4-1 in a blaze of glory. So 4-1. Let's take a moment before we open this together. Let's just pray. Let's ask God to teach our hearts. God, I thank you that uh, your word is living and active and that it is um, bigger than any word that would ever fall from my mouth. And God, I pray that as we, open your, as we open Scripture today, we open your word, that what you would do is teach our hearts. That, Father, we wouldn't be wrapped up in, in the words that I say, but instead the words that you speak to our hearts. So, God, I pray that even now as we sit here, that you would prepare us to meet with you. We know that only you can reveal truth. We'll never discover anything on our own. You reveal truth to us. And so, God, reveal truth to our hearts. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you something about him this morning. God, just whisper that in your heart. God, teach me something about you this morning. Pray for someone beside you or in front of you or behind you. Just be in the habit, as I say each week, of praying for someone else. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Just Even if you don't know their name, just whisper that God would move in them. Lord, we pray that you would teach our hearts this morning, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're starting in verse 15, but I'm going to back up to verse 12. We've been trying to read Scripture in context, and these things feed off each other. And so we're going to see a couple of connecting verses in 15, and so I want you to know what they're connecting to. So we're going to back up to 12, where we were this past week, and I'm going to read all the way down through chapter 4, verse 1. So Paul says, not that I have already obtained all this, or have I been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which for Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, and I consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. One thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you too think differently, God, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern that we gave you. For I have often said to you before, and say now again, even with tears, many live as enemies to the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. 
If you're here for the first time, this is your first time with us, all right, or you missed kind of the past few weeks, all right, or you're, maybe you're not a follower of Christ, you've never given your life to, to Christ and, be, and, and call yourself a Christian, last week's message and this week's message are going to sound like I'm saying this, quit being bad, start being good, all right, quit being bad, start being good. The truth is, that's not the gospel. If that's the gospel, we're all going to hell. It's just the way it is. So what I'm not saying is stop being bad, start being good. That's the answer to living a life that follows Christ. In order to really understand, you've got to understand the gospel that we've been talking about for the past weeks and weeks, that we are sinful and broken and dirty with an inability to do anything on our own. And God, in his deep love for us, sends his son, his perfect sinless son as an offering to rescue us and redeem us. We put our faith in Jesus Christ and we have new life in Christ. We become a new creation. That's the gospel. The gospel is what we can't do for ourselves. That in no effort of our own are we able to attain or earn or merit God's love. So when we talk about living differently, right, we're talking about living in response to that truth. And Paul's writing to a group of believers in Philippi. All right, he's saying, listen, these tr- this truth, this gospel, this rescuing, redeeming love of God, it compels us to live differently. So what we act and how we live is different because we are compelled by the way that God has saved us and rescued us. The way that we live does not earn the first, but the way that we live is a response to it. That's the challenge of the Christian life, that God has rescued and saved us, and I want to be different because God calls me a new creation, and I don't have to live that old lie any longer. So when we talk about pressing on and standing firm, what we're saying is not to do those things so that somehow God will love us more, but instead, God, because you have loved me so much, I want to be different. I want to live different. I want to press on. I want to stand firm. And that's what Paul's going to take us today. We looked last week at press on. What does it mean to stand firm in the face of opposition and struggle? So verse 15, Paul does a little bit of a transition where he connects those previous verses about all the things that he hasn't quite obtained, all the struggles that he's having, and how he's pressing on and forgetting what's behind. He connects those with the call to stand firm. He says this, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. What Paul's telling this group of believers is, listen, if you're still wrestling with questions, If you still have doubts, if part of what I'm saying isn't resonating with you, that's okay. And you want to know why it's okay? Because God is still growing you. God is still maturing you. So just seek him, and as you seek God, God will make those truths clear to you. Paul's saying, it's not my job to convince you. I want you to spend time with the Lord, and God will make those clear to you. See, we spend a lot of time chasing answers for our questions. We want God to tell us the whys. God, why is this happening? Why did this happen? Why did my aunt get cancer? Why is my son doing this? Give me answers for those things. Why is my marriage falling apart? Give me answers now. God always withholds information from us so that we will seek him more intently. See, God's desire is not to give us answers to our problems, but to allow us to seek him so that we can see those things clearly in him. As God matures us, our ideas change, don't they? The more mature we get, the more we realize that God is growing us. When you were 18 years old, what did you know? Everything. I knew everything at 18. I would change the world at 18. The older I get, the more, the more I realize how dumb I really am. 
Like people think, I think people think wisdom is like more knowledge. I think wisdom is really the reality that you acknowledge what you don't know. That makes you smarter. I know much less now at 25 than I did at 18, <laughs> right? Much less. I remember coming home from college. I had this crazy, awesome experience of the Lord year, and God was changing me. I remember coming home and explaining to my parents why they weren't very good Christians. I remember my parents just being like, well, you're crazy. But I was, I just knew it, man. I knew it. And the older I got, the more I realized how ridiculous I was and that the thoughts and struggles I was having was because God wasn't done maturing me yet. And the more he grew me and the more he matured me, the more I realized that God was making things clear to me, right? That's this process of sanctification. We talked about it last week. We are in an ongoing, lifelong, never-ending growth process in Christ. It is the process of being made holy. Not holy as in perfect, but holy as in set apart. And God is growing you as a believer, as a follower of Christ. So Paul says to this church, listen, if you think differently about some of the things that I'm telling you, that's okay. Because as you mature in God, he will make them clear to you. Seek him. Quit seeking resolution for your struggles and start seeking the God, right, who created all. Don't look for answers, but instead say, God, I want to know the one that created the questions in the first place. So Paul starts off by saying this. This is where we begin. Now he says, this is what it looks like to stand firm. Now, verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1 is where we get that picture. Brothers, my joy, my crown. This is how you stand firm in the Lord. So we know that these verses we're getting ready to read are leading us to that call to stand firm. To stand firm in the face of opposition and struggle. Remember, the Philippians are facing daily persecution. They are in poverty. They are new believers. And living as a follower of Christ and a New Testament church meant you might lose your life. And he's saying, listen, you're going to face opposition, so I want you to stand firm, and this is what it looks like. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern that we gave you. The first call to stand firm is this. Paul says, live like me. Now, this is a really bold thing, right? I mean, Paul's saying, I want you, as you stand firm, to do this first. Live like me, and take note of those that live according to how we told you to live, and live like them. Follow my example. Act like me. Live like me. Now, it's important to understand what Paul is not saying. He is not saying, be like me. All right? Now, you may be thinking, live like me, be like me. Aren't those the same thing? The answer is no, and they're not even close. Paul is not saying, I want you to imitate my life. Wear what I wear. Think what I think. Want my gifts. Want to be me. But I want you to live like me. Because I'm so committed to following Christ that it impacts my decisions and the way I live. Paul just finished in those first few verses saying, uh, we looked at last week, I haven't obtained all this. I haven't been made perfect. I'm still struggling. He tells the Corinthians that he's got thorns in his side, that he is wrestling with sin. Paul's not saying, I want you to walk around looking like a bunch of Pauls, saying the same words, wearing the same clothes. But he's saying, I want you to model your life after the way that I model mine. This is confidence in a man that says, I want to follow Jesus. And I started really thinking about this because most of us are so bent on living independently, demonstrating to our parents and the world that we can do it on our own, that we don't acknowledge the truth of finding a mature believer in our lives that we can model our life after. How many of us have people, whether in this community or in another community, that you look at and you say, that person, man, they live like Jesus in their work, in their home life, the way they raise their kids, and the way they love their husband and wife, that I want to model my life after them. I don't want to be them. I don't want to look like them, but I want to model my life after the decisions they make. 
Most of us are so independent that we want to demonstrate our ability to do it on our own. But here's the thing. The Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. It was always meant to be lived in community. Just read the Bible. It's meant to be lived together. So it begs the questions, a couple of questions for me. One, is there someone in your life? I don't care how old you are because maturity isn't necessarily always marked by age. Is there someone in your life that you can model your life after, that is a follower of Christ, that you could look at and say, I want my decisions to reflect decisions that you've made. I want to learn from your mistakes. I want to learn from the ways that you've gone wrong, what God is doing in you. We call it discipleship. Sitting down with someone and saying, I want to, my life to be impacted by your life because I've seen you walk with the Lord. The second question that begs for me is, am I living in a way that would make someone else want to model their life after mine. And not just necessarily in the confines of these walls. But think about people in your field or, or, or people that have gone before you. People that you admire and respect because their trust in Jesus Christ has been played out in the way they make decisions at work, at home, wherever. I think it's time that some of us look around and we said, God, I can't do this on my own. I want to model after someone that's been there. That's the picture of the church. The church is the picture of modeling our lives after people that have made decisions in front of us. And that's what Paul says. He's willing to say, look, join with others in following my example. And find people around you, find people around you that have made those things and follow them. Don't be like them, but live like them. Now, it's not flawless and perfect, but it's a way of saying there are people that God has put in your life that have gone before you. Learn from them. It's not the Lone Ranger Christian kind of experience. Join with others as they follow my example. Live like me. Paul goes on to say this. So we're going to stand firm. We've got to learn there are people in our life that God has placed there very intentionally. 17. Join with others in following my example. Okay, look at verse 18. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies to the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. The second piece of this idea of standing firm is this. Beware of worldliness because it kills. Now, you may not see the world worldly in there, but if you look at at 19, you'll see it kind of buried in there. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. It's exactly what Paul's talking about. Now, let me define worldliness for you because we all come with different definitions. Worldliness is the idea, all right? is the idea that I have found my home in this world, that I have found my life in this world, that this world can give me what I desire, that I think like this world and I live in it and that I am a part of it. So worldliness is the idea that this world can give me something that I can find value in for my heart or my life or my mind. This world is my home. Now most of us that were raised in church were not taught that definition of worldliness. We're taught the definition of worldliness about behavior-driven things. And if you just abstain from these things, right, then you were not living worldly. And those things usually revolved around four things. Drinking, smoking, gambling, right, those kind of things. Drinking, smoking, gambling, and then that's dancing, right? If you abstain from dancing, smoking, drinking, and gambling, especially if they do them all at the same time, right, then you are not a part of the world. And so we set up boundaries that said engaging in this behavior of worldliness will create something over here where I can be marked as a real, true follower of Christ. So we identified behaviors and we shot those down. And as long as we didn't do those, 
we felt like God was going to be fine with us. And we made markers out of those. But worldliness, although those things can lead us to that place, it's not worldliness. Worldliness is something that takes place in our heart. Worldliness is in our engagement in the things of the world to find a false joy that really only God can give. So when I engage in my heart surrounded in the things of the world, that I can find my identity there, that somehow the world has answers for me, my financial struggles, my relationship struggles, that I can find those things that I engage in worldliness. And worldliness, hear me say this, it kills. It kills. Listen to this. Paul goes on to say, or he says this, many live as enemies to the cross of Christ. I say again, now even with tears, many live as enemies to the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Paul is not talking about pagans, right? People that don't know Jesus. He does that earlier on, and, and we know that pagans are enemies to the cross of Christ. In fact, Paul himself tells us that once we were alienated from God or enemies in our own minds because of our evil behavior, we are enemies of God when we don't know Christ. But that's not really what he's referring to here. We really read the book of Philippians in whole, and Paul says this, I I say to you now again, I say again, even with tears, many live as enemies that cross Christ. Who's referring to? He's referring to believers, or people that have called themselves Christian, that claim to follow Christ, that have sold their life to the world and the promises of the world. Do you remember in chapter 3 what Paul's talking about? When he was teaching, saying that some people are going to come and tell you that if you are a follower of Christ, you also have to do these things. You have to be circumcised. You've got to obey all the Mosaic ritual law. You have to say yes to Jesus and live this way. And that's truly what it means to follow Christ. That's the definition of worldliness. Saying, God, I believe in you, but I also believe that this world has something else to offer me that will make me, make me either happy or will make you love me more. And Paul says, listen, It so broke my heart that it's brought me to the place of tears. And I've said it before, and I say it again, even now with tears. Many live as enemies to the cross, meaning our worldliness is the enemy to the gospel. Their destiny is destruction. It's not about being sad or not being fulfilled. It's soul-destroying. When we pursue the lies of this world, that we find fulfillment, that we can find respect, identity, joy, happiness, wrapped up in this place, we're pursuing a lie. And that lie is soul-killing because it tells us that we can find something apart from Christ. Can't happen. So worldliness kills, all right? So the second part of that is that we've got to beware. I think that Paul is giving us a warning. Not be aware, but beware. There's a big difference. When you're aware of something, to be aware of something means I recognize that it exists. To beware of something means I'm on my guard. I can very much be aware that something exists and never guard my heart from it. But there's a big difference. Paul says basically that we have got to beware because worldliness kills. And it's all around us, isn't it? The trappings of the world are all around us. And they're not engaged in behavior because they're assaults on our heart. Right? And it's not just the the secular media, although it's there. Anybody that has Facebook can tell you that. The lie that Facebook promotes is a worldliness. It says that everybody else has a better life than you. And if we're honest, most of us have looked at Facebook at some point in time and gotten sad. Because if you open up on Valentine's Day, everybody on Facebook is in love. And they all get life-size teddy bears from their husband. Every one of them. And they go to some fancy dinner and their husband jumps out of a pinata or whatever. The rose in his teeth, right? And you're like... My husband, he got me a card and forgot to put his name in it, you know? 
Everybody else is more in love. Everybody else has a better life. They've got vacations and new homes and new cars. And look at the thing I got on my new this and my new that. And we went into Banff, Canada. And we rode there on a donkey. And my kids smiled the whole way. I can't even get my kids to church. Because it promotes something in us that says, if I only could have this, if I could only go there, if I only, if I only, if I only, I would be full. And it is a lie. It's a lie. But you know what? It's not just secular areas too. I dare you to go to Mardell's or any other Christian bookstore. Walk up to the, the section that sells the best sellers. Look at all the titles. Two-thirds of the titles you, you read will say something along these lines. That through God, you can have the life you want now. It will, they will tell you that through God, you can have your fullest happiness, your fullest joy, whatever it is your soul desires right now. That God is the doorway to you having the right life for you right now. And it's a lie. It's a lie. It's a picture of worldliness that uses God as an entry point to get what I want. I want my best life now. Only way to do it is through God. So I'm going to pray more and God's going to make me happy. Following Jesus ain't never got anybody happy. It's joyful. It gets you in a lot of trouble. It makes our worlds collide because all of a sudden, if I'm really going to follow Christ, all the things that go for me are out the window. The lie of worldliness is all around us. Anything that tries to tell us that we can find it here, happiness, joy, self-sufficiency, that there's a part of this world that will give it to us. If I just made more money, just had a different husband, just had a different wife, just had a husband, had a wife, had children, had a new car, new job, whatever, that somehow my emptiness would be fulfilled is a lie. It's a lie. And Paul says, beware. And you want to know why you need to beware? Because it doesn't just make you sad. It will kill your soul. Kill your soul. Paul says this. Remember, here's what I want you to remember. Our citizenship is in heaven. The Lord Jesus, and that we eagerly wait a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring all things under his control will transform our lowly bodies so we'll be like his glorious body. Paul says this. He says, you're not from here. Standing firm means recognizing that I want you to follow my example and the people that live like this around you. I want you to fight worldliness at all costs. Be aware it is soul killing. But I also want you to remember this. You are not from here. And if you're not from here, you're not going to find answers from this world for your struggles. Your citizenship is in heaven. Now, it does not mean that we don't live here and we don't have all the responsibilities of living in this world. But we are not of this world. You will never find answers to the holes in your heart by filling them with the lies here. It won't happen. Your citizenship, who you are, is not marked by this world. Now, if we were to really kind of dig into these verses, there's something much more rich here. There's sort of an eschatological picture, and that's just a fancy word for saying kind of the study of the end times and the resurrection of the body and the second coming of Christ. There's some really cool promises here. But I want to just focus quickly on that standing firm. We'll revisit that other stuff later. But Paul says, listen, stand firm. You recognize that this is not your home. There is a part of your heart that should always be a little homesick for what this world can't provide. Always. If at any point in time you feel like this world has answers for your struggles, you are vulnerable to the lie and the soul-killing aspect of worldliness. It won't do it. We have to live a little homesick. We have to. The God, I know that when I stand in your presence, you will fill all of my holes, all of my brokenness. There will be no more tears. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more brokenness. And I want that now in my heart. And I long for it. So Jesus, come back. A little homesick. Wrapping everything up with this thought. 
And we're out of time. 401. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. So Paul wraps it up by saying this. My brothers, followers of Christ, brothers and sisters, this is how you stand firm in the Lord. You who, who I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, this is what I want you to do. And I, remember Paul has that deep, special affection for the Philippians. He like gives them his best. He calls them the people that he loves and he longs for, his joy and his crown. Please hear me say this is what he's saying them. It's almost like that picture that if I had my own kids, right, my 7-year-old, um, my 10-year-old, and I looked at him and I said, you are the love of my life. I would do anything for you. You are the joy and the crown that God has given me. Please hear me say this. Don't believe the lie. Fight and stand firm and fight against worldliness. If you hear me say anything, press on, grow in your relationship with Christ and fight the lie of the world. It's almost like that's what Paul's pleading with these church to do. Listen, I love you and I long for you and you are the joy of my crown. So if you hear anything that I've got to say, anything, keep seeking Jesus as you grow in him and fight the lie of the world. Stand firm. Brothers and sisters, this is the call. As we close our time in worship this morning, what I challenge you to think is saying, God, have I bought into the lie of the world? But somehow if I just made a few extra dollars had a little bit different relationship, maybe got in one, that somehow things would be different for me. If I just had a different job or lived in a different place, if my brother just wasn't doing this or my son just wasn't doing this or whatever, I could just hadn't done these things the past 12 years. That somehow if those things were there, then, I, then everything would just, it'd be okay. If I could just take my kids here or do this with my, all lies. If you bought into any of them, ask God to purge those from your heart and say, God, I don't want that lie. I know that only you can fill me and I want to be homesick for the fact that you are the only one that will fill my soul. So we say, as we close our time in worship, inventory your heart and ask God to replace and repair those areas of brokenness. Let's pray.